Reflecting on the water As the sun shuts her eyes Don't know why you'll uncover Watch the tide rolling With the moonlight Everything is silent On this wheezy piano Just a reminder, this is Cedar Creek Crime Diaries Part 2. Be sure to check out Part 1. All right. We are Missing Magnolias, and today we have Dr. Amanda Nickerson with us. Dr. Nickerson has a long history of research on the topic of bullying, and we are really privileged to have her tell us a little bit about the research behind this this topic so we can get a better understanding of sort of the causes, the consequences, and the the environments that shape bullying. Welcome, Dr. Nicholson. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So just to get us started, uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, your background and what led you to be uh, an expert on, on bullying and its effects? Sure, I'd be glad to. So I'm currently a professor of school psychology at the University at Buffalo uh, here at the State University of New York. And I also direct a small research and outreach center called the Alberti Center for Bullying Abuse Prevention. And I'd say ever since college and even before, you know, I was drawn to psychology, the helping professions, And then once I got into graduate school, I was at the University of South Carolina, I started to focus more on the impact of crises and violence on youth, and then particularly how schools could prevent and respond to these issues. So thankfully, some of these events that that I study and talk about, like school shootings and things like that, are are really very rare. But bullying is something that happens on a daily basis and we know can have psychological, social and educational impact and harm. And, you know, the more that you talk to people and, and learn about it, the more it's just something that almost everyone has some relationship with. So in my role as the director of the center, I'm really privileged to be able to conduct research on this area to better understand the phenomenon and hopefully help um, prevent and intervene with it. So I guess in stumbling upon this case at uh, Cedar Creek, how did, how did that initially make you feel as, as a kind of a spectator and, and as well as maybe an expert that's come across many cases of bullying? Yeah, well, you know, I have pretty limited information, I should say, about the case. And, you know, when you ask my reaction as, you know, an expert versus it's hard to separate that out from the human reaction, right? As a As a person, it was very disturbing and painful to read about these alleged experiences and the notion that it it seemed to be included in this so-called hell day, which, you know, sounds like institutional bullying or or hazing, you know, that is part of of a culture of, you know, ongoing abuse. You know, I guess a couple things that, that struck me, I read about an independent investigation of what happened. And it's certainly very common that after an allegation like this, that there would be 
an investigation, you know, the school typically leads it, but certainly if the issue arises to the level of physical assault, sexual assault, you know, when there's some criminal component, law enforcement would certainly be involved. And, and usually best practice would be to interview the, the victim as well as the alleged perpetrators. And you would do that obviously separately and then any witnesses. And at least in the report that I read, it didn't sound like the victim was interviewed, which I found different from best practice or what I would, uh, what I would expect. I had also read a mention sort of criticism that teachers and schools as mandated reporters really should have reported child abuse. And My understanding is that child abuse is the perpetrator needs to be a parent or a person responsible for the welfare of the child in some way. So a daycare provider, a babysitter, a coach, something like that. So from my understanding, this actually wouldn't meet that. I don't think child protective services would take a call like this if this was student on student. But certainly police and law enforcement would if there was, you know, actual physical sexual uh, assault. So I guess those were a couple of things that that kind of struck me. You know, we've also interviewed uh, members of this community within maybe that have attended the school or are just in this. They don't attend the school and aren't parents, but are a part of this community. And I think you talk a lot about bystanders when we talk about bullying. Can you talk about, uh, you know, especially within the school culture, I can imagine there's teachers, faculty members, parents, coaches. What what are the effects as well on the bystander in terms of bullying? Yeah, it's interesting because we focus so much on the on the victims and the perpetrators as we should. But the bystanders, we know, also feel effects of this. So a lot of times we say the bystanders saw something and didn't do anything. And we find that when we study the bystanders, most of them are not apathetic or not caring about it. In fact, a lot of them are are quite emotionally distressed about what they're experiencing, but may not know what to do. So some of the research on bystanders has shown that they do experience emotional isolation, anxiety, depression, paranoia. Uh, There was actually a study done uh, quite some time ago now where they asked college students to recall a bullying incident that they had witnessed. And then they completed some uh, measures about their trauma symptoms And they found that their trauma symptoms were at a level as elevated as those who had witnessed a mass shooting or had experienced a natural disaster. So I think it really showed, you know, that bystanders can be very affected by what is happening. I've done a little bit of reading about school cultures and how that can shape uh, the likelihood of bullying in, at a school. Could you give us a little bit of information about sort of the role of the school culture? Sure. It's very important. I mean, bullying is not caused by one thing. It's not an individual thing, a family thing, a school thing. A lot of times it's these different components coming together. But we know that bullying is more likely to occur in school cultures that either A, don't have a firm 
and consistent message about bullying and about how students and faculty and others should should treat each other those that have more of a culture of kindness and caring and high expectations for you know this this pro social behavior very low tolerance for mistreatment uh, of anybody are are going to be less likely to have bullying but climates where people either dismiss it, say, you know, this isn't a big deal. This is just how things go. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, or we don't have that here. You know, also cultures that might have a climate of real competition and superiority, sort of the the rich get richer and and those that don't fit a certain mold, you know, aren't going to fit in, then that can sort of uh, be a breeding ground, if you will, for more, for more bullying. In your research, I, I know that you've, uh, you look at all different ages, um, both the younger school kids is all, all the way through college in terms of bullying. Have you been able to gather, is there a difference even between private schools and public schools? Yeah, I had a student that did some research on this and she found that, well, she was also looking at single sex versus mixed sex. And we actually didn't find very many differences at all. But I looked into this a little bit more and found some indication that in private schools, I guess it it happens in all environments, I should first say in public and private school, but there was some indication that in private school that it's taken a bit more seriously, that the policies are more likely to be enforced, that that the climate is, is, is sometimes more sort of accepting. You might not have as many of the social hierarchies. And some are saying that that may be because private schools tend to be smaller you know, more sort of uh, personal relationships, connections have a bit more, you know, funding and and things like that, you know, but I've certainly been in private schools that have, especially with, you know, the differences between those that are there on scholarship versus others and, and sort of the high expectations and things that it's not that private schools are immune to it, but there is some indication that they kind of maybe take it a little bit more seriously if and when it does happen. Can you also talk a little bit about the uh, the difference between the genders and and how they bully? I know in this instance we have um, it was adolescent males, and it seemed more on the aggressive side, if that's fair to say. Can you can you talk about the difference in the genders? Yeah. So overall, boys are more likely to engage in bullying and bullying perpetration than our girls and more likely to engage in the physical forms of bullying, as you said, as well as sexual harassment. Whereas when we look at girls and boys in terms of cyberbullying, verbal bullying, and then more the relational kinds of aggression, the excluding, the ganging up, things like that, that that seems to be a little bit more equal, if you will, among boys and girls. Interestingly, though, girls report being victimized more than boys do in all forms of bullying except physical, where, again, we see that more in boys. How often um, does do we see sexual assaults as a component of bullying or hazing? I guess I should ask first, what's the difference between hazing and bullying? And Mm -hmm. then how likely are sexual assaults to occur? Yeah. 
Great question. So bullying, we think of as having like three primary components. One is that it's unwanted aggression, and it could be physical, relational, verbal, cyber, And there's a power imbalance. So that could come from physical strength, um, being the member of a racial or ethnic majority group, uh, things like that. And it's either repeated or highly likely to be repeated. Hazing has some of those same components, but it's more related to a sort of, I don't want to call them rites of passages, but this uh, sort of passage or entry, if you will, into a group. So we sometimes think about of it as institutionalized bullying, where the idea is that you're initiating people in some way into a group, whether it's an athletic group, a band, you know, something else. And usually hazing can be so-called positive and harmless, which we're now saying, you know, all hazing really is not okay. If you're forcing people to do something that you yourself would not do, or it's just part of what you need to do as part of a group, then that's hazing. But oftentimes that hazing does have those components of either sexual abuse, alcohol abuse, sorts of high risk sorts of behavior. I don't think I can give you an exact percentage of how many bullying cases include a sexual component. And then it also gets a little bit confusing, if you will, because under the umbrella of bullying, some of these things would fall, but then we would also consider that more like if I heard about a sexual assault and someone was calling it bullying, I think I'd say, well, technically that would fall under bullying, but really you're talking about sexual assault. So I think I would sort of take the one, not that it's more serious, but in some ways, you know, it is, that's a criminal offense that is you know, that's a a physical violation um, against someone. So I think I would sort of shy away from calling that bullying, even though, again, it might meet the definition. You know, you mentioned that schools have taken kind of proactive measures. If they they spot bullying, you know, the victim is is a priority and they want to mitigate have you seen schools move in a direction of also if they rec- see bullying, they also want to offer counseling and find out the underlying problem for the bullies? Is there kind of a two-way street happening there that from, from your perspective? Definitely. Yeah. So best practice would definitely be, you know, when there's a bullying incident to first find out more about what happened, the context behind it. Most of the time there is a context, you know, and it's hard for schools because they might be hearing different things from different people and different interpretations. But the end goal is to stop this from happening and to change behavior and to try to mitigate negative outcomes. So for working with the target, you you know, a school wants to, to support them, to problem solve with them, with what they're comfortable with. I think that helps empower them as well to try to protect them from this happening again, to try to help them not take it in and blame themselves, which we know is often associated with worse outcomes, but absolutely working with the perpetrator as well. I mean, I think we're still in a place from parents and from society and from schools where punishment is you know, kind of the go-to what, you know, what's going to happen. 
I like to think about it as consequences instead, you know, so what, of course, the behavior needs consequences, but the whole idea of consequences is to change behavior. So, you know, how is the school working at, you know, limiting or restricting some of the things that the perpetrator can do, you know, if they're doing it as in a sports team, then they're benched for a certain number of games or, you know, something tied to where it was happening, but also trying to find out, well, how can we replace this with another behavior? You know, what's going on for this person perpetrating? Is it that they're trying to get attention and social status from others? And is there a a better way to do that? Is it that they themselves have experienced bullying or that this has been modeled for them through physical punishment? Is it that they're struggling with their own sexual identity and this is how they're, you know, they're taking it out? There's usually something that is is motivating someone. Um, so I think trying to find out more about that and working with that um, in an ongoing way is the ideal. I think schools try to do that. They often have a lot that they're juggling. And I, I think sometimes it turns into investigating and, you know, punishing or having a consequence as opposed to doing some more of the, the ongoing work. And it's not all within the school, right? I mean, we often point to the school, but some of those things really need to happen at the level of the family or an outside community mental health provider or other sorts of services and supports as well. Uh, you know, in this case, I think the, uh, the victim was silent about um, this bullying that was happening over, over months. What are some of the hallmarks for uh, parents to recognize as well as spectators in terms of someone being bullied? So some of the more classic warning signs of bullying are you know, unexplained injuries, bruises, you know, lost or torn belongings, things like that. Uh, it often uh, comes out in, in physical complaints that don't seem to have like a root in an actual illness. So headaches, stomach aches, changes in behavior is probably the number one thing that we want to look out for. So if someone was normally, you know, engaged in activities, part of a friend group, but they're starting to withdraw, they're not as talkative, their eating habits are changing. So they're either not eating a lot or they're, they are eating to excess difficulty sleeping or nightmares, declines in grades, loss of interest in schoolwork avoiding school or other social situations. So there's, I think some of the problems with these warning signs is that, you know, if you know anything about substance abuse or child abuse or mental illness, you're probably thinking, well, most of the things she listed could also be signs of those other things. And, and it is true. But what I always say to people is if you're seeing these signs, it's likely that something is happening. So, you know, trying to, to find out a little bit more about, about what that is. Um, I'm not sure if you, um, in your research, if you're able, this might be outside the scope, but in terms of you've taken all the measures and the bullying has been addressed, what is the recovery period like? Is How do you build the child, self, child or, you know, young adult self-esteem back up? Is that a 
a gradual, what's the, what's that process like? Well, it depends so much on the person, the supports that they have in place, how they perceive the situation, right? So, you know, for kids that internalize it and blame themselves and say, there must've been something about me, you know, that's, we want to try to change that and have them see that they're not at fault. Also the support, if they have a go-to adult um, that they feel supported by, you know, that's a huge indicator of resiliency. If they have other peers or friends or things that they've involved, they're involved with, that can help to be very protective. It's again, for people that feel like now everybody hates me. I'm totally in this by myself. I'm isolated. I'm hopeless. Those are the kids that, you know, I worry about the most because that's, you know, feeding into a pattern of sort of more depression and anxiety and and maybe longer term issues with relationship and trust and things like that. There's others that, you know, are quite resilient and, and can say in their mind, like, I I matter. What happened to me is is not okay. And that's not on me. That's on someone else. And maybe I need to, you know, if there were people that weren't helpful for me, maybe I need to find different people to relate to, different, different hobbies, different interests. And so I don't think we can put sort of a, a time on what recovery looks like because it's so, you know, different for different people. I know this is probably a whole separate animal. We, we talked about a brief nod to cyberbullying, but can you talk about from your vantage point, just social media and how that's factored into, it's a huge topic, <laughs> it um, how you guys reconcile and parents, what do you, what do you do? Yes. I think we shake our heads a lot and say, oh, Um, no, seriously, I hear that so much from parents and teachers, especially those of us that didn't grow up with it or, you know, it it came later and we were in college and, and, and later is just the, wow, it's just a different a different world. And I think for many adults, it really worries us because of that potential of the 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the how much time are they being exposed to this? Like when it happened to us, we could go to school, but then we could go home and it would stop and things like that. Social media is so tricky. You know, it's look at our news. It's so under fire right, right now. And I, I think as with with almost anything, there are there are some positive benefits of it in terms of social connection. And, you know, most kids are saying, you know, I feel closer to my friends when I can communicate with them in this way. When I'm having a bad day, this makes me feel better. But yes, there are a percentage of youth that are being cyber cyberbullied through it and or are looking at the images and other things on that and and it's really they have an unhealthy relationship with it they they can't stop looking at it they have a constant fear of missing out or comparing themselves to other people kind of like when i was growing up it was the 
the images and magazines and, and what girls were comparing themselves to. Well, now I think we're seeing that a lot on, on social media. So I think I'm sort of, you know, talking about, I think for adults, it really is, is a huge concern. It is for students as well, but they, they live this, this is their, their life is, is so for a lot of them is so connected to technology So I think some of the efforts in the area, you know, it definitely takes effort from parents to stay steadfast in when your kid can even get access to to this kind of thing. Mine are a little bit older. I have a 21-year-old and an almost 17-year-old, but I was able to kind of keep them off until they were older, you know, 13, 14. And thankfully, mine didn't have a whole lot of interest in the whole social media, online gaming, absolutely, but they're both boys. So I think, you know, educating parents that really kids are not supposed to be on social media until they're 13. Like there's actually internet privacy laws and everything about that, that they, they shouldn't be on before, but then being really concrete and open about what their privileges are, you know, saying, don't share your password with your friends, but I absolutely need your password because I'm your parent and I need to check what you're doing. This is my device and my phone that you have the privilege of using. So, you know, I need to monitor what's happening. There's also parental controls on phones and screens about, you know, limiting time, just knowing what your kid is doing, you know, having the the computer in a more common area. So it's not always in the bedroom and things like that. And then there's also a lot of great resources for teachers and educators. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has NetSmarts and NetSmarts Teens that goes a lot into digital citizenship for all ages and the dangers of cyberbullying and online predators and things like that. Common Sense Media also has a lot of excellent resources, very developmentally appropriate throughout the lifespan. As a parent, I always like to look them up because they would say what parents were saying and what kids were saying and about everything from video games to TV programs and movies and things like that. So I think there are a lot of resources, but it needs to be a constant sort of conversation and monitoring and just realizing the power of the tools that we have. I'm thankful that I didn't have this when I was a teenager because there's a I would have been in a lot of trouble. There's a lot of things I said and did that were unwise. And if there was this record of it for all to see and share, I, sh- I shudder to think quite honestly. Yeah, I'm older than I look and I can't imagine for these kids. I I remember the worst use of technology was a three-way phone call, if you remember that scene in Mean Girls. So I I can't imagine these poor kids. I have, I guess, maybe one more question. And I I know Michelle's going to have something to close on. But, you know, in this instance, and it might still be early to really uh, project this, but there might be a, a school of generational bullying 
I, I don't know if in your research, if, if it's more um, you encounter more isolated incidents or if you had the opportunity to study what a school looks like when it's a it's part of the, the culture. What advice would you have for someone that's a, a part of that? And how do you break that cycle? Yeah. And when you mean uh, when you say generational, do you mean because my mind goes to like smaller community where you know, maybe that that's just part of the culture and the kind of the parents were involved in it and then the kids were, but I wasn't sure if that's what you meant or if you just meant sort of an ongoing culture of like a chronic culture of this. I think I, in a way, Michelle, maybe correct me, I might even mean both. Um, we're hearing uh, instances of um, parents that have attended decades back. And then there's also possibly a a power imbalance where the parents are involved in the school's curriculum, if that makes sense. So it's kind of a unique situation. Okay. Yeah. I guess the things that, that I, that I could, I, I, from a research perspective, I don't have, you know, I tried to look it up briefly and I don't know that people talk about that that much. I've definitely worked with schools and I would say that they are usually in smaller communities where it has been more of this this kind of pattern or or culture that's been like this is this is kind of how it is and because we're so small it's also harder to escape it and more people involved and i think with that you know you've got it and it it can't be just on the school you you've got to involve the community so i worked with a great superintendent that in very small community who actually mandated that the parents and the students come to school one evening and he um, he brought me in and we did, you know, I did sort of bullying 101, but then got them into small groups and really had them talk about the impact of it, what we want our community to be like. And, and he had the Taylor Swift mean song going. He broke a plate and said, like, this is the effect that you know, you can't take this back once someone's cracked like this. I mean, he just took it on as stop community and look at at what is happening and this this isn't okay. The other thought that I had, and this was more at the university level, but I, I was at a previous university where there were some traditions. They it wasn't It wasn't bullying, but there were some traditions that kind of reminded me of Hell Day, but it was more, you know, substance use and and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, in order to sort of break that cycle, the university itself said, we're going to like reclaim this day and make it into something else. So instead of being this day or tradition that that had really gotten people into a lot of trouble, they said, we're going to organize all these other things that are fun, free, substance free, that kind of thing, so that we can sort of, you know, reboot and start a new tradition and say, we recognize that this was an issue and we want to do something as a community to make it go forward. So I think it really has to, you know, involve those efforts that involve you know, the stakeholders, the community, and really making a dedicated effort for change. 
Absolutely. I mean, that was going to be my question is like, what do we do? How do we intervene, especially in smaller communities, which I know that there are a lot of our listeners who, who are, you know, South Louisiana, (laughs) a lot of small towns around here. So I think it's really, you perfectly summed up sort of the issues that are faced for these schools, these communities and, and how hard, but also rewarding it could be to, to make those changes. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think would would benefit our, our listeners to know? I think you asked great questions and I know I talked a lot, so I can't think of anything else, any last tidbits that I'd, I'd want to share. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad. I'm so sorry that about these allegations and that it happened. But you know, bringing more awareness to this, having more people kind of stand up and be outraged and and move for positive change, which I think is so important. And even in these small communities that, you know, you talk about that it might be so hard, chances are there's a group that is, that wants this change, that, that wants to, you know, live and work and exist with people in a more positive way. And it's, it's definitely possible, but the adults have to model it too for our, right. For our youth. And um, I think that's really important too. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for all of your information. My pleasure. 